Hi, this is Darcy Rowling, and welcome to the Women 17 podcast, conversations with global women changing the world one sustainable development goal at a time. In each fortnightly interview, we'll learn about these women's journeys, challenges, successes, which SDGs their work contributes to both globally and locally, as well as hear tips on how our listeners can participate in the advancement of the sustainable development goals. Hi, listeners, and thank you for joining us today. I'm really happy to be speaking with Cynthia Koenig, founder of Wello, an award-winning social venture that co-creates disruptive innovations designed to provide better, more reliable access to safe water. Welcome, Cynthia. Hi. Well, hi, Darcy. Great. Thank you so much for agreeing to join us today. I'm really excited to to be speaking with you and for our listeners to learn a lot more about your good self as well as Wello. Um, But before we get started, I got to tell them a little bit about you. (laughs) Um, Very interesting career that you've had. Um, Cynthia's expertise lies at the intersection of business innovation and impact. Um, She's helped launch ventures of all shapes and sizes, ranging from community-run ecotourism businesses in Mexico and Guatemala to a national strategy for sustainable tourism in Bhutan, which I, it's like one of my top places I want to visit. <clears throat> I still haven't gone. <laughs> um, so I think you can tell me a little bit more about that. Um, Cynthia earned her MBA and her MS degree from the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business and School of Natural Resources and Environment and holds a BA in Anthropology from T- Trinity College. Um, she is an Unreasonable Institute Fellow and a member of the Herb Institute for Global Sustainability's um, External Advisory Board. Um, so, um, your career and, and all that you've done is just extraordinary. I'm really, um, I'm excited to tease this out and for our listeners to learn a lot more about you. Um, so why don't we start? Um, I think, a, I think a really great place, I mean, in, in, where you and I had discussed this before, really great place for us to start is, um, at the University of Michigan's Ross Business School, where your focus was on addressing can business solve poverty? So I think if we can um, start there, and I'd love if you could share with our listeners sort of how you started to get your arms around, this is a big question, and how you sort of that thought process and how you got started. Thank you. Sure. And and maybe I'll take a step back and, and explain why I started thinking about it in the first place. So my career really started in the nonprofit sector, and I really, really fortunately for me, landed at a, a, a very unusual nonprofit in that, uh, called Rare Conservation, which is really very focused on building as efficient of uh, a model as possible. So, so the organization itself was, was very business-minded. The, the, the mission was to um, preserve um, areas of significant biodiversity um, for and originally for um, for as habitat for tropical bird species, and then as the organization grew, it expanded to include all biodiversity. And and I, you know, the the organization also realized that if if they were going to be able to preserve these large tracts of of significant habitat, then we had to figure out how to make it possible for the people who lived in and around these protected areas to make a sustainable living and, and earn, you know, not just, not just eke by, but really earn a, a sustainable wage. Um, because at the time, and, and this is still the case in many places, so many of the practices that people used to get by were things like slash and burn agriculture, overfishing, 
uh, poaching from the forest. So anyway, that's, that's what got me thinking about it. And I, after spending about, oh, five or so years in the field, um, working directly on grassroots projects aimed at creating sustainable economic opportunities for local communities, it, it just really felt like sometimes one step forward, two steps back. Mm. And, you know, I thought I, I really liked Rare's approach that we were, while we were a, a charity, we were very business minded in the way that we deployed capital. Kind of the, the model was to um, train individuals who lived in these communities, um, train and upskill them in careers like things like things like working in ecotourism, becoming tour guides, et cetera. Um, and create a model where you know they could pass on their knowledge to other people in their communities and and grow much larger sustainable ventures that could employ large numbers of people without having a negative impact on on their local environment. Um, but it but it was an uphill struggle and and one of the things that I, you know I remember just really not being able to understand was you know why are are some of the the most basic needs going unmet. And, and, you know, shouldn't business be able to play a role? One of the things that was so frustrating was that charity was slow. So you would do a site visit, write a proposal, circulate your proposal for funding, wait to hear back, you know, eventually maybe a year later, (laughs) you'd hear back and get some of the money, maybe all the money, but, you know, whatever, whatever funds you got may not be the right amount. The needs might've changed in the interim and, you know, worst case scenario, I remember, you know, worrying, like, what if something devastating happened? What if, you know, there was a forest fire and the forest we're trying to protect is gone by the time we receive the funds that would help us protect it? So anyway, um, I came to business school thinking, you know, this would, business just seems like such a much more elegant way to solve these, the problem of poverty. Um, and and that's where I, I really started thinking about social enterprise and to your question of, of how, what did that look like when I was a student, it was taking a very traditional curriculum, learning, you know, finance and operations and, and all of the things that, um, that you would learn in a traditional MBA, but then also looking at, you know, getting really curious about double, double bottom line businesses, triple bottom line businesses, um, uh, social ventures, and what might a model look like that not only did well financially, but did good in the world. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And so your MBA focus was, uh, or you, a large portion of that was addressing this particular challenge. Yeah. I, I really wanted to answer the question, can business solve poverty? <laughs> Dare I ask you, can it? <laughs> and you, I think you said yes. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I didn't, it, I didn't quite get the answer while I was in business school. It took a little longer, but yeah, I think I, I can confidently say now, yes, I, I think it, it can. And, and it does. There are lots of great examples from all around the world of, of businesses that do exactly that doing, doing well by doing good. Yeah, absolutely. I really like, you know, I think it's really interesting what you shared. Um, 
when you were when you were working for rare and you know looking at creating opportunities work opportunities because you're, you're spot on I mean they have to have some kind of a livelihood if you're protecting areas that they're dependent on um, and you know you have to create some other opportunity so I think that's a really interesting um, I guess possibly, and this is just me speculating, but sometimes on the onset, onset, um, whether it's an NGO, nonprofit, businesses, we don't actually know what the problem is until or the challenge is until we're in the, we're in it. So you know that's sort of when you start to look at this human centered design process and start to think about, oh, hey, wait, the ecosystem is much larger than what we're focusing on, which were were birds um, and ecotourism. So yeah, really interesting, really. And that was what you were doing in Mexico and uh, Guatemala. Is that correct? That's right. All over Latin America Mm -hmm. and a little bit in Africa as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. And did did you do the same work, um, similar work in Bhutan? So yes, still related to ecotourism, but this was an opportunity that came to me while I was a student in business school and it was an offer to travel to Bhutan and help the country think about how they might chart a path to to continue to build upon the legacy of sustainable tourism that that they'd set out Um, at the time and and probably still today. um, There was such a limited amount of tourism in Bhutan that it was sustainable largely because there were just so few people who visited the country and um, the country had made a strategic decision to increase the number of tourists that were coming in, but they wanted to do so responsibly and ensure the integrity of, you know, the the natural environment, but also their cultural heritage. And so the opportunity to work on both of those things in tandem were, was just like my dream given my background in ecotourism and and my background as as an anthropologist um, studying, studying human culture. That's extraordinary. And how long were you there? I was there for about six months. Wow. That's amazing. I literally, I mean, I said at the beginning, I've always wanted to visit, um, you know, I've been in, um, in Asia for, you know, 20 odd years and never had the opportunity to go there. Um, I would love to go, um, really. And as you had said, you know, limited, I didn't realize they have increased, but for our listeners, you know, they've limit the number of, um, tourist visas that they give. And actually I think getting a visa and traveling there is very, very expensive. So they're really trying to, to keep it, um, you know, uh, creating a income for the country as well as, you know, protecting the environment. I guess some of those tourist dollars go into to projects that such as you worked on. And and was this with, was it with the government? Was it with the Bhutan government? It was, yeah, it was wow. with the Ministry of Tourism. That is so funny. What a, what's like, what a coincidence that your, all your skills sort of come to this, you know, fruition here and this confluence uh, in Bhutan. Wow. Extraordinary. <laughs> you remind me, you know, I'm just thinking of, um, you know, other places in, in Asia. I mean, certainly, you know, we see a lot of these kinds of challenges um, in, in Nepal, um, you know, in Everest, you know, huge, huge, I mean, this problem, trash and, um, you know, over tourism and, uh, and as such. And I mean, of course, you have, you know, it costs quite a lot of money in order to get the opportunity to climb. Uh, but these are issues that they're facing. Um, I had been, um, I've gone to, um, to Sipadan in Malaysia. I'm a scuba diver. And while, um, you know, we were able to stay, it's a very small island uh, of Sipadan um, and the biodiversity in the water, it's just unbelievable. You literally walk off and you go into a shelf and you're diving with, 
huge rasses and schools of, I mean, it's, it's absolutely the most beautiful place, but it's this tiny little island that really, you know, there's not any infrastructure on there. I mean, you know, it's everything there needs to be, you know, taken off the island and as such. And, um, and I, it's a very fragile environment. And, um, I won't go into to what happened on the island if, if any of you know, but there was some something bad happened on the island and they decided, well, I can tell you, they, they had a kidnapping. So, um, and then they decided to not let people stay there any longer due to the kidnapping. But also I think that that was a wise decision just because it really protected the island. You know, there's no trash or any kind of byproducts that come off of any of the, um, you know, um, uh, the sewage or anything like that. So, um, and I, I've, I've been told from people who've recently dived there that, you know, it's really flourishing and as such. So making those kinds of decisions and you just stay on another island and you have to boat in. So it's not like you're missing the opportunity, but you know, that kind of strategy in order to retain the ecosystem and the biodiversity is so, so critical. Um, and particularly for countries that are relying heavily on tourism. So, mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. So, um, so I wanted to, um, uh, you also, um, is that, um, you did this program called journeys for change. Was this, yeah, journeys for change. Um, and I understand that you, um, won a competition and you went to Rajasthan in India. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Very interesting. So you're, you're going to all the wonderful places in the world. So tell us a little bit about that and how you ended up there. Sure. So Journeys for Change um, offered what they called, if I remember it correctly, a social enterprise learning journey. And and this this was probably the mid-2000s, uh, early to mid-2000s. I was, I was a, a graduate student at the time, and this just struck me as such an amazing opportunity to go see real live social ventures on the ground in India. Um, which was, you know, still was then and still is a hotbed of social venture activity. Some some really interesting, like very creative and effective business models were were emerging from from India, and I, I wanted to go see it firsthand. And this this trip, uh, you know, was fine. I don't remember the cost, but it was financially well out of the reach of a uh, poor graduate student, and. Well, what they were offering, though, was a contest, and the person with the most votes uh, would would win the trip. And and so, you know, the entrepreneurial side of me was like, well, I go to a large university and I have a laptop, so um, <laughs> I set the laptop up in in our common area and had friends help me recruit every poor person who walked by, and you had to you had to vote and you had to write a comment about why, um, why, why I should win this trip. And it was, it was a tough race. Um, (laughs) I, they, uh, I was, and I was surprised. I think they, they sort of only showed you when you hit milestones and I was neck and neck with two other people. And at the end of it, I was like, wow, like, I mean, every person I went to school with had voted at this point ton of people I didn't know, like I gave my all. And, you know, (laughs) if, if I didn't win, it was, there was nothing else I could have done about it. So I was actually really surprised when the organizers called me and told me that I'd won the trip. Uh, And, and so it was a, I think it was a seven day, um, you know, all expenses paid trip around. It was actually Bombay and Ahmedabad. Mm -hmm. And, the only thing I had to do was 
was figure out a way to get myself to India. So <laughs> I, I opened up my bank at the time was offering, I think it was a $200 rebate for every bank account you opened. And they let me open like four or five accounts <laughs> until they, you know, my, my, the, the branch manager was like, there's nothing here that says you can't open another one, but if you don't mind, uh, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to lose into my trouble. job. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, with that, I mean, I think that was, that was the, you know, the scrappiness that, that got me started, but, but really that trip was so eye opening. I'd never been to India before. And, um, you know, after the trip ended in Ahmedabad, I traveled up to Rajasthan with a, you know, really just a couple contacts that, um, that the organizers of Journeys for Change had suggested I, I call on when I got to Jaipur. And from there, it just snowballed. So someone would tell me, oh, you should go talk to this person in, at, at this organization or this business. And it was such a wonderful education. Um, I ended up spending the next, let's see, I think it was, yeah, I mean, two years basically living out of my suitcase and traveling around really opportunistically trying to learn as much as I could about um, launching a business in India, um, about social enterprises and what worked and what didn't, um, and just about the problem, the problem of lack of reliable access to water. So I spent long stretches of time living in villages uh, carrying water. Interesting. And so you went from seven days to two years, right? So same plane tickets, or did you need to go back and open up a few more bank accounts to go back? <laughs> <laughs> I, there was a little back and forth, but yeah, I think my next trip back, I I just bought a one-way ticket and figured, wow. uh, you know, find a way find a way to get back somehow. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And so when, so when you were there, I just want to sort of pick this apart a little bit. So why, um, how did you come to water? And, you know, you were there, you're supposed to be there for seven days and uh, while people are, you know, introducing you to people and as such, I mean, sort of, can you walk us through your process and in what you were thinking and other other things that you were exploring and how you came to water. I think it's a really interesting um, thing to share with us because it, I think you've had quite an evolution in your in your thinking. Sure. So I, I think I had mentioned to you that my interest in you know the the potential for business to to solve poverty or do good was really sparked before I started graduate school and one of the I guess my my idea for how to solve what I what I thought of then as the problem. I thought that I thought of the problem as lack of access to information. So I, you know, I'm aware of, you know, and this was again going back 25 years, right? Um, but you know, just the solar panels, for example, or solar lanterns, any any sort of clean energy solution. Those weren't, they certainly weren't widespread. Um, it wasn't something that you, you mean, you'd maybe occasionally see a solar panel here or there, but it was so far out of the reach for the, the, the communities where I worked. Um, and even for the, let's say like the, the organizations who worked with these communities, right? The idea of, oh, what if we installed a solar panel so that people didn't have to go, you know, into the forest, collect firewood, chop down trees, um, and create this ripple effect of negative ecosystem effects, you know, um, 
less trees holding the soil, more mudslides, right? Like, why don't we, why don't we start at the source? Those, those solutions, if you will, clean cook stoves, efficient stoves, whatever, which just weren't even, there wasn't much visibility around them. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, kind of like how, you know, you have any catalog, right? Um, Any physical paper catalog, but, you know, now we have, we have the internet. I could, I could, you know, have a website that would catalog all of these products and there's, that actually exists now. (laughs) So there's an organization called Copernic. I believe it's, if it's maybe the name has changed, but um, I think a couple of years, they, they started around the same time I was thinking about starting this idea. Um, But I thought, wouldn't that be great if, if at least you could raise awareness so that you know, for example, a community member who I worked with who was maybe learning about sustainable tourism and had an idea to do a night tour of of the jungle where they lived, right? So you could see wildlife at night when, when the wildlife is most active. Well, instead of, you know, spending money on batteries and then having to dispose of the batteries in this very remote community um, that, you know, often, you know, there's very little recycling, uh, very little in the way of recycling facilities, what if they could have a solar lantern, right? Um, something so simple as that, you know, what if we could make it, make someone aware of this so that they could ask for it when, you know, one of their NGO partners or community uh, partners ask them, what, what do you want, right? Um, because often the answer to, to what do you want is like, well, what do you have? <laughs> I'll take whatever you have. What are you offering? Um, so this way, I think it, it, it enabled people in local communities to be much more engaged and much more empowered in the requests that they were making, right? So that the aid that they were receiving could be directed to their needs, not at what a a well-meaning outsider might assume are their needs. So the idea was for a catalog. And when I started thinking about, okay, well, where do we begin? I thought, well, let's focus on, on an area and energy was, you know, there's a lot going on in the energy space. Um, I thought about transportation. I, you know, what about more sustainable ways of enabling people to move either themselves or goods, getting goods to market, et cetera. But when I started thinking about water, I realized there really wasn't much in the way of products that would enable people to get access to clean water, right? I mean, the methods of filtering haven't really changed. Um, they, you know, in some ways, it, it was more of an education um, issue, you know, educating people to understand how to purify their water, what the solution was. And anyway, I just, the more I thought about it, the more I realized, wow, like this is, why aren't we doing something about this? Because women and girls in particular spend hours of their days walking to get water, waiting in line for a tap to fill their water container. Um, I won't, I won't go into detail about, about the, the challenge, but the, what ends up happening is that women and girls, you know, lose the opportunity to do more productive things like jobs, more productive work at home, going to school for girls. So I got really intrigued by, you know, why there just wasn't a focus on, on water. (laughs) And, and that's what I spent. I spent just a, a ton of time getting curious about this question of, you know, how might we deliver more reliable access to safe water? Mm-hmm. Yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. And I love, uh, thank you for sharing that. I think that that journey of 
sort of looking at different things and, you know, uh, I don't know, um, that sort of iterative process of thinking and talking to people and, and understanding what their needs are. I, you know, that's, as I said before, I mean, sort of this human centered design. I mean, why, you know, why give them a widget if they don't need a widget, you know, they didn't, they need the screwdriver to go with the widget and they don't have a screwdriver. So, um, you know, but what do you know, what do they need and what, what are the difficulties that they're often facing? You know, I think, you know, we all are guilty of this companies and individuals thinking, you know, we know better, or we, you know, we've got something that needs to be put into a, a local market when in fact, you know, they've got probably a better solution or, um, or our um, solutions don't address their needs as you just shared. So, um, so then, so then, okay. So you've, you've spent a lot of time, um, looking at, at, at water and, and I hear what you've said, but this is a very important thing to point out is, um, you know, girls not being, you know, if you're carrying water and you're going for miles and miles or kilometers, kilometers to get the water and coming back, you have no opportunity to get an education, um, which was already probably a, a difficult battle for girls to get an education to begin with because the parents weren't, you know, oftentimes don't want to um, spend the money on them because they might marry at a young age and they're not their response. They would later maybe not be their responsibility. Um, and so, yeah, women would or girls would spend most, a lot more time at home. So I well understand this. So, um, so tell us, um, so, so you think about water and you've kind of defined what something that you want to focus in. So then what, what happened next? What did you see that sort of triggered, you know, I'm starting to try to get us to wellow. So, you know, sort of thinking, okay, what, what did you see? How were they carrying the water? How far did they have to go for the water? Things like that, that started to make you formulate, um, you know, a design for wellow, which, um, of course we haven't shared with anyone yet what, what that's all about. So if you could walk us through that, thank you. Sure. You know, I think, um, first of all, I, I came in with some firsthand experience. So when I was living in Latin America, uh, we worked in extremely remote places. So, you know, in order to, um, uh, how should, well, we lived in extremely remote places as, mm-hmm. as a, a group, we were um, running this training program for about six months at a time. And in order to teach our students English and our, our students were the community members who were um, getting a, a, an education into how to lead. Sorry, this is probably way too, going to be way too long. Let me start over no, and give oh, you the short version. No, no, go ahead. No, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm assuming okay. you're, you're giving them the, these are the ones that are um, looking at ecotourism, right? So they're. That's right. Yeah. 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 We were sense. creating these immersive English environments. Uh-huh. And yeah. so we, we would be in these, you know, very remote campsites, really, in, mm. you know, in, in the middle of the jungle. Uh, and we had to collect our own water. So we would, you know, you'd take a five-gallon bucket and go, I you know, fill it from the well. Uh, it was so, so heavy. I could barely carry it. By the time I got home, it was half empty. And you know, that, that pattern repeated itself. Like later when, when I lived in some, in some villages in Mexico and Guatemala and later other, other places in, in Latin America, in South Africa, right. There was always just this drudgery around water collection. And when I, when I started to spend time in rural India, of course, the same only here, the distances were even longer. Um, and the amount of water you know, even young girls would carry would be 
you know, multiples of what I could ever possibly carry. And, you know, I got really curious about, you know, what are, what were some of the alternative methods people were using, right? So they would try to use carts, but, you know, the cart would be too heavy because mm-hmm. you'd fill it with so many water jugs and oftentimes someone else in the family would borrow it and use it for something else. So it wasn't reliable or people in a couple villages would use donkeys, but then they would worry that the donkey would be carrying too much water and they didn't want to hurt the donkey. <laughs> so, um, you know, they were, they were really sensitive to making sure the donkey didn't do too many trips, but it got me curious about, well, okay, there are other things we could do here, right? Like what if, you know, what if we created a flexible piping system that you could roll out once a day and, uh, you know, put your, have your water pumped through this pipe, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, like with balloons, what if you had just really small amounts of water, um, that a balloon would, would transport, um, back and forth to your home all day or, you know, I think we kept coming back to the the cart idea because that was something that seemed like people were willing to do, but it was just so subpar. And I think the, the idea of the water in the wheel was really, you know, it, it's an idea that's been around. I mean, lawn rollers are, are tools that are used on cricket pitches and, you know, to make sure that the, 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 grass on the or the surface of the cricket field is totally flat mm-hmm. and yep. so those are huge right they carry something like 100 gallons of water so we thought okay well let's just make it smaller what if we made a really small one that was a, more than what people can carry on their heads but because you're pushing it along in a in, in a rolling container it's easy to do there, there's also by the way a, a tradition of using a, a container like this um in Kenya. Mm-hmm. So there are, there's, there, there are one or two communities in Kenya or, or, or areas in Kenya that actually take, they recycle uh, vegetable oil containers, which happen to be round and basically cut the end off and, and fit them together. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. perfect. They leak a lot, <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, they, they fasten a rudimentary handle onto it and pull it. So those, all of those things were inspirations. And you had seen that yourself. Um, I'd heard about it. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 I'd heard about it from, um, another, I think someone else who worked in, in the social venture space. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and how were they carrying the water? Was it on their heads at this time? Uh, I mean, you mentioned lots of, you know, you know, you tried lots of different ways, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, and I would imagine the roads were not very good either. I mean, dirt roads or, you know, probably lots of rocks and so forth. How were they carrying it? How were the yeah, women and the girls? Primary, the primary method of, of moving water is, was head loading and still is in, in many places. Wow. Interesting though, when you were in, in Latin America, it's buckets. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Buckets and then uh, heads. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Oh. And then, so, um, so then you, you found that this might be a good um, starting place and that this, you know, could work and you'd seen, you know, or heard of prototypes of, of similar that were used. Then what did, what was your next step? I mean, did you, did you draw up some plans? Did you speak with the designer? Um, what did the local community have to say? Were, were the women, 
in agreement or they're like, yeah, no, we're just going to put on our heads where you're, you're, you're make you're crazy. <laughs> All of the above. Um, oh, right. <laughs> you know, I think it was, it's, we started out with small models and showed, you know, we, we made a few small 3d printed concepts of what we thought could work. And I, I think that the tran I don't know if it fully translated, um, and so we, we went on to taking plastic containers and, and modifying those to just create something larger so that people could see what, you know, what we were talking about and experience it. And, and that, was, that was really helpful because I think you know, it's really hard. It's, it's kind of like saying, hey, imagine um, this great thing that's going to change your life and it looks like this and it's going to feel like that. And, you know, I think that's just really hard to conceptualize, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you told anyone 20 or 30 years ago, right? Imagine you just carry around this small little device the size of, you know, a little bigger than a credit card and it has music and photos and, you know, entertainment on it and you can do, you can work on it. Like, it's just, you're like, yeah, sure. That sounds <laughs> great. Um, I guess I'd like one. I don't know. Sure. But, but seeing it, right, like that makes it real. And so, of course. Yeah, so yeah. we had to spend a lot of time, I think, initially just simply gaining the trust of the communities where we were spending time. And at this point, I had a, a really small team. There were just a couple of us, but um, we had probably about five or six villages, um, mostly in Rajasthan, um, but all in, all in northern India. And as we would you know, kind of spend time in one village to another, they, they were representative of slightly different challenges that people had accessing safe water. Um, slightly, they were slightly different culturally. Um, and, you know, from, from that, I think it, it was important for us to get different perspectives really early on. So for example, um, in most of these villages, the women were extremely shy uh, and weren't, you know, weren't really comfortable giving us their opinions or, you know, um, well, well yeah, I guess normally asked. Even, they weren't asked. <laughs> they weren't, yeah, they, they, yeah. they weren't. And I, you know, and there are a couple, I'm just thinking of, I'm pausing because I'm thinking of a situation where, um, one village where we'd, we'd worked in for a while, we had just showed the women in the village and, and the men too. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you that story in a second of, of working with, with different groups in the village, but we'd showed, we'd showed the, the village our one of our early prototypes for the water wheel. And I think I, I felt really frustrated because I was like, wow, like we're not getting, we're not getting really strong feedback. You know, we're not, I'm, I was, I wanted people to tell me, yeah, make it, you know, five liters bigger or, you know, create a handhold here. And we were, we were met with like silence really. Um, so I was feeling kind of frustrated and, and as we were leaving, one of the women grabbed my arm and she just said, thank you for thinking of us. No one's ever thought of us before. And, mm. you know, I, I think it, I realized that, you know, we, we needed to spend the more time that we spent in the communities and the more time I think that, that, that initial shock wore off, like, wait, are you really thinking about us? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah the more valuable feedback we were able to get. So, so this really was a very iterative design process where, you know, oftentimes we were just, you know, we would have to get information in a very roundabout way. 
um, and then incorporate it into the final version and then show it to people and then kind of continue to come back and come back. The other, the other story I was going to relate to you was I think one of the biggest mistakes I made early on was thinking that women carry water. Therefore we're making a product for women. And it was so frustrating because we, you know, we, we found that the women were, they were very quiet to begin with, but they were even quieter in the presence of men. So I thought, well, let's just, let's just try to, you know, not have the men here. And so I, you know, two of my colleagues would try to like distract the men with a separate conversation in a separate area while myself and another colleague could actually talk to the women and hear their insights. And one of our, our partners, um, a partner organization that we worked with pulled me aside and was like, Hey, I get it, but like the men seem to really want to be here. So why not just let them be part of this conversation? And, you know, we would, we, we, we were like, okay, fine. Sure. We'll try it once. And as it turned out, the men collected water too. So they collected water for use in the fields and they were really interested in using the water wheel. But because I wasn't even open to having a conversation with them, I just Mm -hmm. made an assumption, um, we didn't include the men from this village in, in any of our prototyping sessions. So from that point on, we, we just changed the way that, that we worked. And it was, we were, we welcomed anyone who wanted to come at all. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and well, it sounds like you were focused on domestic use. I mean, that was, you were looking at domestic use, not a broader, you know, I mean, you know, crops and, Mm -hmm. and, and as such. So interesting. But yeah, I think even (laughs) what was really fascinating to me was that, you know, now, you know, years later, going back to visit the water wheels, we found that in many villages, men have become the primary water collectors because Mm -hmm. the water wheel is a tool. (laughs) And, um, and, the men will use the water wheel, um, you know, do a, do a, and it, it, you know, it it might be a shared, a shared product that people use, but men will do one or two trips in the morning, um, and just ease the burden at a really busy time of the day so that the women in the household can do all the other things that they need to do to get ready for the day. Hmm. Interesting. Probably a great way for them to also spend time with their mates and do it together. They probably, um, unlike the, you know, the women probably have more of a community, um, aspect to their day if they're going and fetching water and as such, but the men maybe are working on, on the soil independently, perhaps. Um, I'm just speculating that a uh, good opportunity to catch up with your mates, talk about what the cricket, the cricket match <laughs> that's on and as such. So, uh, that really, it, it's really extraordinary. And I like how you, you know, you opened the door and that, you know, you had an insightful, um, uh, colleague or partner who, who said, yeah, let's, let's let men in this. I think this is, you know, from all of the wonderful women that I speak to, um, it's always, it's always the question, the right question, how you ask the question, a different way you ask it that gets to some new insights, you know? And so, you know, and you know, your trajectory changed clearly, you know, like, Oh, okay. But I I find that really fascinating. It's always every woman that I've talked to, it's always about asking a question and, and 
just in culturally maybe changing it a couple different times to get the right to get the answers um, and as such so really fascinating and so you um, so um, designed the prototype and then I'm assuming you then you work with local um, local um, suppliers for all of the bits and stuff maybe could you just tell us a little bit about um, and I'm going to share your website so people can go and look I mean to me it looks like it's like a like one of those old lawnmowers. I mean, it looks like a, like a, you just push it, right? So you're right. pushing, you're pushing it and it's, it's, it's it, the concept. I mean, it's ingenious and it's very simply designed. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't so simple when you were designing it. Um, but could you talk about the, um, uh, the, that design process and, you know, like what do people do if it's broken or if they have any kinds of issues or gets punctured, you know, how do they, how do they go and repair it? And actually one other question I'll throw at you and, and, and leave it to you. Um, I'm just curious, do you mentioned that, um, sometimes like they'll, they'll, they'll go and get the water. Oh, is that your puppy dog? Do you have a dog? Yes. <laughs> he's, he's like, stop talking and pay attention yeah, to me. Exactly. <laughs> Mine's outside the door. <laughs> She's sitting there patiently, I think. Um, but I'm just curious if when they buy, um, or when they, when they get it, is it a collective purchase or is it an individual purchase? So, or an individual. So thanks. That's a, that was a loaded, uh, a bunch of questions in there. Sure. I'll, I'll start with the design process. We, intentionally did all of our prototyping as close to uh, the communities where we were intending to the water for the water wheels to go as possible. So, mm-hmm. you know, this meant finding a, you know, a, a person who had, you know, like a, who was, who was doing metal work, who had a welding tool and we could ask them to like cut a piece of plastic for us and kind of spot weld it together um, really rudimentary or like for the handles, you know, we were using rebar and asking them to bend the rebar for us. Um, mm-hmm. cause we wanted to understand what was, you know, if, if, a, if a water wheel were to break, what were the, where, what were the local shops people would go to have it repaired? Right. What would that look like? And, and so we figured, you know, we'll start here where, where people will go and, and see what insights we can derive from how, how the water will be repaired as we were thinking about how to even build it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yep. Yep. Great. So the, the actual pro the, it was a complicated process as, as simple as, as the device is, um, in order to ensure that the, the product didn't leak and, and actually poured really nicely, Mm-hmm. we were faced with the challenge of making a really wide opening and it had to be wide also so that um, you can clean it. So you have to be able to put your whole arm inside of it and clean the interior. So I cannot tell you how many assholes <laughs> we went to and asked like, Hey, can you stick your arm in here? <laughs> and, um, I'm sure people got, a really big, people got a really big laugh at us. Um, did that probably hundreds of times to ensure that, you know, we, cause the, the bigger you made the product, the harder it was to ensure that it sealed properly and wouldn't sure. leak. Um, and there's, you know, the, so I think that going, yeah. Um, we initially also started with a manufacturing process that was much cheaper for us. The molds weren't super expensive. Um, before graduating to a more sophisticated manufacturing technique that ultimately would enable us to 
um, have the benefit of economies of scale and a cheaper per unit cost, but the cost of, of entry was a much higher mold mm -hmm. price. So, so as we were kind of moving through all of this, um, you know, the design, like I said, the design process was very iterative. We had these very rudimentary molds that we were constantly modifying. And, you know, the initial product was a little bit leaky and we had, you know, gaskets that were always falling off. And actually the, you would think the wear point of the product would be on the surface that's rolling, right? right but it's yeah. actually, um, at the, at the point where the handle connects with the barrel mm -hmm. and, Without, I don't want to bore you with too much of these details, but it's really complicated, um, challenging. Um, it was a, it was a challenging problem to solve to figure out how to get more plastic in the area that the handle was connecting to, mm -hmm. and without, yeah, with because it because they're without overdoing the whole product and making it much heavier and more expensive because we were using so much plastic everywhere. So that was a, a long, complicated problem to solve. But, you know, it was, it was seeing the product in action in the field um, over the course of months that we had came to identify this area as a pain point and something that we needed to fix. And, you know, just constantly tried to improve and improve and improve until we've now landed on a final design that is, you know, very, very durable. Um, the product has, you know, we say a five-year lifespan, but some of the original ones are still rolling around. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm trying to think if I've answered all of your design uh, questions. No, go, yeah, okay. design questions. Yeah, I okay. think so. Yeah, my other and, question was purchasing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then collectively. So, so we initially... We, we try to we try a lot of different pricing models and uh, marketing strategies to see what resonated. And you know, I think the reality here was that there's it's not one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So depending on the community, depending on the time of the year, um, depending on how people heard about the product, you know, someone might, you know, one, one individual from a village might see it and say, that's a great idea. Yep. I want one. Um, in other cases, the head of a village or an NGO working with a village might say, you know, this is a solution that would benefit a hundred families. Let's, let's buy a hundred. So I think there is really no one size fits all. Mm -hmm. um, we use lots of different models. In some cases, when ability and willingness to pay are high, people will pay the full you know, $25 cost of the product when it's low. Um, we work with partners who can help us deploy a sliding scale payment mechanism so that people pay what they can afford to. Um, and the other, another interesting thing about the way finances work in, in, you know, the communities where we work, which are rural and, and primarily driven by agriculture is that a couple times a year, you have a lot of cash. Um, you have cash when you sell your crops and a, the, price of a $25 water wheel, which gives you the benefit of time and convenience um, and reliable water, like a, a, an oasis of reliable water in your home, is, is actually a very affordable, very reasonable price. Mm -hmm. So we find that people are, are willing to buy it. We often see that um, when daughters get married, their families will buy them one to move to their new home. Uh, we have a really, really wonderful partnership with Habitat for Humanity um, which may sound surprising because Habitat for Humanity builds homes, right? 
um, one of their, um, one of their, uh, by policies, I guess you'd say, um, is that every home they build has to have a toilet. And, you know, even though low flow toilets are available, you still need some water to flush them. And one of the reasons mm-hmm. why people don't like using, um, toilets is that, well, there's no water and it, you know, you, for, for a whole host of reasons, um, having, having extra water on hand makes it much more likely that people are going to use improved sanitation facilities. So Habitat for Humanity distributes water wheels when they build new homes. Brilliant. Wow. What an impact that is. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Extraordinary. And do, um, I, do you find that or do you have any information or data that you collected when um, sort of the beginning of this journey where you were sharing that um, a lot of young, younger girls and younger women um, are doing this load? And as we highlighted, you know, maybe missing out on education. Do you have any any feedback if this is keeping girls in school because it can be managed by adults and they don't need everyone in the family or all the girls in the family to be collecting water throughout the day? Um, is, do you have any any data on that? We do, yeah. So the so this is a, a tough one to collect data on because you need to collect years and years of data in order to see what the outcome is on mm-hmm. on girls' education. Um, so one of the one of the metrics that we wanted to pay close attention to was um, uh, graduation rates, and and this is information that's just like it's really difficult to come by at the individual or village level. But anecdotally, we, we can say, like, yes, that's absolutely happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we hear from our partners is it's one of the reasons why they invest in the water wheel. Um, just that simply that reduction in the time burden mm-hmm. makes it possible for girls to spend more time in school every day and more year, get more years of schooling overall, for sure. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. What a great um, uh, byproduct of, of this solution. I think that's really great, keeping girls in school. And you know, as we all know, I mean, education is so important. Um, yeah. Oh, it's great. Really good. So I, I'd like to highlight um, to our listeners um, that Wello contributes to several of the sustainable development goals, including um, SDG 1, which is no poverty, 3 is good health and well-being, and 6 is clean water and sanitation. So um, so you, you, you shared a few obstacles. Um, you've got incredible impact. I mean, this is really extraordinary how much impact um, Wello has had in, in, in this area of India. Um, I'm wondering, you shared some of the obstacles, but um, maybe if, you, if there's something else you didn't share that you want to share. Or, <laughs> I mean, we only have an hour podcast, but, uh, but I'm sure there were other obstacles and, uh, that, that you came up against if you would like to share. You did say some already, but if, if there's nothing we can carry on. <laughs> I think I, sh- I shared the major ones with you. Um, you know, I think the we really faced a lot of the biggest obstacles at the start. And, you know, I think I had, once we had, had kind of locked in on the concept of the water wheel and I was, I was starting to pitch to investors um, for funding and write grant proposals, I got a lot of, oh, that won't work. No, absolutely not. Like, um, like men are heads of households. They don't invest in products that are designed for women. They won't spend their money this way. Um, water can't roll along the ground because water is sacred in India. And if it rolls along the ground, it is polluted and it's just going to be a non-starter. 
Um, I got a lot of, you know, I think that, you know, the conventional wisdom says, and, th- and those were really hard, I, I think, um, challenges to refute, right? Because, well, conventional wisdom says, and um, I, I took it in stride as, as best I could. Um, I do remember one pitch presentation I was giving where a, a very well-respected investor stood up and just completely destroyed my <laughs> my whole premise for existing. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm done. This is it. Like, like we're, we're losing this, you know, opportunity for funding and I don't know what to do next, but look, I mean, I think this, I, I got some advice from, um, from a mentor at the time who was like, just stay focused, you know, like find if, you know, if you believe that this is that, that, you know, the, the, this conventional wisdom doesn't hold true, then just find the data, like, mm-hmm. you know, find, find one example, then find five, then five, 10, then find a hundred. And until you slowly can, you know, you can say with confidence and I, which I can say now, which is, yes, this is all true. Water is sacred and water should never touch the ground. However, um, people also really value convenience and, and the water wheel is, is exactly that is, it is convenience and enables you to carry, you know, five times as much as you could in a single trip. And, people, people really appreciate that. So, um, you know, I think, I think those were, those were such hard ones to overcome. Mm -hmm. Um, but stay like staying focused was the key. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, I've spent quite a bit of time uh, in, in other parts of India not, not in the Northern part in the Southern part. Um, and I did not know that, uh, that water was sacred. I didn't realize that that was the case and that touching the ground is, it, I guess it makes it impure and as such. So, um, that's a big one <laughs> yeah, to, an obstacle to overcome, I'm sure. So, um, so, um, I'd love to know, um, what's next for you. Um, and also how can our listeners help you? Sure. So um, we have distribution across India through a partnership with uh, India's largest plastic manufacturer. And what Wello does today, rather than focusing on the on the ground distribution, is we focus on putting our time and attention into areas where um, we we want to, quote unquote, make headloading history. So we identify communities that are uh, in greatest need where people have a very low ability to pay for a product um, and where, you know, going through normal charitable paths just make it, it would make it really slow um, to ensure that everyone who needs a water wheel in these areas is able to get one. Um, So we go community by community, again, working with partners on the ground who we've been working with for years uh, to do the distribution and the identification of, you know, where, where we should send water wheels next. And we also work with them to figure out what the most appropriate model is in terms of the distribution. So are people able to pay a little bit? Are they able to pay half the cost, none of the cost? And we use um, donations into our 501c3 nonprofit in the U.S. to cover those costs. Sometimes we end up just covering the cost of distribution because these are really remote locations and it's it's really expensive. You know, sometimes the last mile delivery of a water wheel involves, in some places this involves camels. Um, <laughs> but, you know, any way you can do it, we've transported water wheels 10 at a, th- 10 at a time on the top of a bus. Um, mm-hmm. And so whatever it takes to get them where they're going, 
um, sometimes just mean that it's really expensive, but, um, so that's some of the, some of the areas where we use our funds. And, um, uh, how could listeners can, um, uh, do you have an opportunity for listeners to make donations, um, in individuals to make donations on your site? Yeah, absolutely. So our website is wellowater.org and you can donate directly through the website. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And I wonder um, if you could tell us roughly how many of the uh, Wellow um, Wellows are available or how many of you distributed, excuse me, across India. Do you have a, a ballpark figure of how many? Yeah, it is. I think it's, it's well over 300,000 to date. Though that might be an old number because I haven't I haven't looked in a while. <laughs> it's <Sorry>. January. It's <laughs> January. Nobody's doing anything in January. Yeah, <laughs> you're still trying to get over this, the last year. So yeah, no worries, no worries. But it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary number. And I like. I really like. I mean, I come from an intercultural background, and I really like how. Um, how you're tackling it a village at a time and understanding um, how each village, you know, as you said, I mean, if they can afford it, if, um, you know, all kinds of different factors that come into play, you know, they're not, you know, there's, it sounds like no two are the same, maybe similarities, but I think that's really, really important um, to, to be able to speak with local community and get their buy-in and understand how, how they can afford it and, you know, where the money's going to come from and et cetera. So I think that's really um, maybe a slower process than is required, but, uh, but has more impact. And um, yeah, I think that's a wonderful approach really. Um, Cause I'm sure you probably could do it in a really massive, you know, blowout way, but the impact of it maybe will be more skepticism or um, people not really understanding it. But when you take the time to speak with people and spend the time and understand their needs, I think it makes a huge difference. So, mm-hmm. oh. and, and I should, sorry, I should also add um, while, you know, India is has been a focus for a long time, in large part because that's where we manufacture and, and because of the really tremendous need for water wheels in communities that don't have reliable access. Um, we also distribute in Africa. And, and you know, we face different challenges in Africa um, just due to um, the bigger distribution challenges and lack of access to capital on the part of our local partners, um, whether they're distributors or oftentimes we're selling to uh, charities and NGOs. So um, if if any of your listeners have have ideas of organizations or businesses to connect with on the ground, we're always looking for ways to, to connect with new partners um, because certainly, you know, there's also a tremendous need in, in other parts of the world. And um, we, we typically ship, you know, a full container load of water wheels when we're working internationally. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I can think I interviewed someone in Africa. Um, and I think she would be interested in, in having that conversation with you. Um, uh, it's mobility for Africa where they're creating, um, 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 uh, mobility f- predominantly for women that are actually for women on um, these uh, vehicles that are created for them the ter- that um, suit the terrain and as such and I don't know I'm thinking maybe they could help you get them out into very rural areas um, uh, of, of Africa so I have a connection for you so wonderful <laughs> could be thank some you cooper- cooperation so and I'll send you the link to our podcast conversation so um, so I'm going to change gears a little bit um, and just wanted to ask you um, at 
the beginning, when I introduced you, I shared that you are a fellow at the Unreasonable Institute. And I just wanted to um, uh, ask you if you could tell our listeners um, what is the Unreasonable Institute and what you're up to. Sure. So the Unreasonable Institute is a social venture incubator that um, has has pivoted a couple times over the years. When, when I was a fellow, um, there was a class of, I believe, about 20 of us um, social entrepreneurs from all over the world um, building impact businesses. And we spent uh, about, I think it was two months together um, in Boulder, Colorado, building our businesses, refining pitches, um, basically developing all the all the skills that would, would help us build, you know, sustainable ventures and connect with potential investors and partners to help us grow our businesses even further. So the, Unre- the Unreasonable Institute is really kind of a, a launch pad or an accelerator for impact businesses. And they've been, I think they've been doing this now for over 10 years um, and have just a really like I said, they've, they've evolved over the years, but there's just, if you're, if you're interested in impact businesses and, um, want to learn more, they have a really fantastic website and blog, um, that is very thoughtful and they work with some of the most amazing entrepreneurs and businesses I've ever come across. Great. Thank you for sharing that. I also have that link on our website because, um, you know, quite a few women are looking, you know, for investors and, you know, are, you know, are social entrepreneurs themselves. And um, yeah, so it might be interesting for them to, to learn a little bit more about that. So thank you for sharing it. Um, so we are um, at the end of our time together almost, but I got one more question for you before I let you go. Um, what advice would you give to our listeners, whether they're um, women, social entrepreneurs or um, young women? Um, I've talked to um, all kinds of demographics of women from age groups and geography. So I just love to get your advice. And I do have some men that listen too. So <laughs> so I'd love to get your um, advice that you would um, share with um, with our listeners. Thank you. I, you know, I'm, I'm often approached by people who have an idea and, and just don't know what to do. And I think there's, there's a little bit of paralysis at that early stage. Um, whether it's, is it a good idea or how do I get started with my idea? And, you know, the, the advice that, that I received (laughs) way back when that I didn't, I don't, I think I didn't think it super helpful at the time, but in retrospect, I think it's some of the best advice I've ever been given is, um, is just start before you're ready. Just start, just lean into your curiosity. If you're wondering, does anyone, is, is this a good idea? Like, would anyone really want this? Go ask people, right? Um, try, you know, with, with some of my, my curiosity about water, um, I just, you know, I'd had the experience of living with limited access to water, but I asked my, my early employees in our job interviews, I, I asked them to um, see if they could live out of a 20 liter container of water for even a day. Like imagine all of your water comes from this 20 liter bucket. And let's have a conversation about working it well out mm-hmm. after you've had that experience. So, hmm. you know, again, that lean into that curiosity, get some firsthand experience, prototype something, try it out, because what you need most at that stage and, and really at any stage when you're stuck, right, is, is more information, um, more information to help you frame the question. I think oftentimes we look for answers, um, but in the social venture space, I, I came to realize like the, the answers aren't there. Like there's, I'm never going to find that one person who's like, the answer is three. 
<laughs> now go, right? Yeah. Um, it's all about frame. As you said earlier, it's all about asking the right question. And sometimes you have to ask it a few times and ask it in different ways. And once you know that you've asked the right question, the information is there for you. Mm-hmm. So just start before you're ready in, in asking and answering all those questions. Beautiful, wonderful advice. I really, I really, really like that. And um, yeah, I think it's great. And, and also I, I, what you had shared earlier that your mentor had said to you, I think was really impactful also. It's just go ahead, you know, I mean, just go for it. Just stick to, stick to your knitting. And you, you know, you had a good, you had a good idea. So, um, and I think that's also part of the struggle or the challenge being a social entrepreneur or entrepreneur in general is, you probably get a lot of no's before you get some yeses. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> and you can't please everybody. So, uh, you know, I'm old enough to know that, you know, not everybody's going to be pleased by what I think or feel, but, uh, but there are going to be some people who are so wonderful. Well, Cynthia, I really, um, appreciate the time. It's been so interesting to, to learn about your journey and to learn about Wello and, um, wow, I, it's just really extraordinary. And I'm just, um, really grateful that you were able to take the time out of your day to spend with us. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been lovely chatting with you. Great. Thank you. And um, I'd like to thank our listeners uh, for joining us too on the Women 17 podcast, uh, Conversations with Global Women, Changing the World, One Sustainable Development Goal at a Time. We welcome your feedback from today's podcast and wish you a happy, safe, and productive day.